Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Compact Nation podcast. I think rather than talking first about where we've been, uh, we might talk about where we're going, but probably we should introduce ourselves, right, as always. So I'm Emily Shields, Executive Director of Iowa Campus Compact. And I'm J.R. Jamison, Executive Director of Indiana Campus Compact. I'm Andrew Sellingson, President of Campus Compact. Let's do a little January preview of kind of what we've got coming up. And I know um, we're all going to be in Washington, D.C. in January for some of our own meetings, but then uh, leading right into the AACNU conference. And Andrew, I think we're going to have a couple of exciting things going on there. Yes. Yeah, so uh, the AACNU conference is kind of leading off with a pre-meeting symposium on the power of civic engagement. And um, it's kind of a cast of thousands situation. Uh, Nancy Cantor is giving a talk, which if you've never heard her do that, uh, is always a great experience. Randy Stoker is giving a talk later in the day from the University of Wisconsin. Um, And in the middle, I'll be serving on a panel that's moderated by Richard Grashi, our board chair, who was also a guest uh, earlier this year, president of Wagner College, and then Folks, uh, Tim Eatman is on the panel, who was once a guest as well. Eduardo Ochoa, president at Cal State Monterey Bay and a great leader in our network. Deborah Schultz from the City University of New York. So it's a really great uh, group. And then uh, later on, uh, along with our vice president, Maggie Grove, uh, I will be doing a presentation on kind of the, the broad strategy we see for Uh, kind of reorienting higher education toward its public purposes. So looking forward to all that. And then during the regular meeting, um, I'll be working with our Director of Professional Learning, Danielle Leak, to uh, do a session on our civic action planning work, what we've been learning from the campuses that have completed plans and are now working on implementation and kind of what insights for us have come out of that process and how we, we think it'll help us continue to build momentum. So. Uh, hopefully we'll be seeing many folks there and uh, I'm really looking forward to the conversations. That's awesome and um, here in Iowa we're up to seven civic action plans. I just finished this week reading the three most recent ones and I'm just it's just so exciting. There's just such interesting um, and different things in each of them. It's really cool to see. So I, I am excited to go to the symposium but I, it also leads me to an, a topic, you know, I've been wanting to ask you guys about, really. I'm considering taking a personal policy position ag- against panels. <laughs> um, and I don't, what do you think? Are you pro-panel uh, or anti-panel? I, I have mixed feelings about panels. I'm often asked to serve on panels, and so I'm used to just how that flows but I have noticed that when I'm not on the panel and I'm at a conference and I'm watching a panel I find them terribly boring (laughs) and you said it not me and I also have to say uh we have our 25th anniversary this year here in Indiana so woohoo 25 years as part of the compact 
And we were going back and forth about do we want to do like a historical panel with uh, past executive directors and some of our founders here who got the compact going. And we are going to do a panel, but we're mixing it up where audience members will have questions underneath their seats and people have to look and pull out questions and mics will be passed around. So although many people wanted a panel, we're mixing it up to make it a little more fun, if you will. So I'm not totally saying they should be discounted, but I do think that there needs to be a little bit of radical change to panels to make them somewhat more interesting. Okay. So here's what I want to say. I, I, I heard both of you carefully exclude from your critique panels that I've been on myself that you've listened to. And I really appreciate <laughs> those are always really someone. great. Yeah. No, no, yours are amazing. It goes without saying. Yeah. No, I heard that. But um, I have also in, so I find myself moderating panels fairly frequently and I feel like as long as you shake it up, like, first of all, get rid of the table. Do not have people sitting behind a table with a oh. barrier separating them from the audience, but like sit in normal chairs or stools or whatever, recognizing that it has to be uh, functional for people wearing different kinds of outfits. And I realize that tends to be more of an issue for women than men. So you have to think about all that stuff and warn people and all that. But then also, I feel like rather than just like I, what I hate is the thing where it's like one question and then uh, you hear each of five people or something work it like uh, ask people yes. different questions, engage them in a conversation, make it, you know, seat people. So there's a sort of half circle arc type thing to the way people are seated, get them talking to each other. I will say this at the Newman Civic Fellows Conference. We had a panel with three uh, kind of social sector change maker leaders here in Boston um, one working on reforming the way prosecutors practice, uh, one working in the health uh, access area, and one for a um, Latino Community Development Corporation. And it was a great panel. The students were really engaged. And it was just, again, like didn't feel like just kind of people holding forth, but we really kind of got a dialogue going. The students jumped in with questions and it was it was a highlight for people. So I think it can work because I think basically people talking to each other is a good thing, but it is also possible to make it staggeringly boring. Mm -hmm. Yeah, maybe we don't need um, panel abolishment. Maybe it's more just reform. Reform. <laughs> panel reform. Yeah, I could join the I, movement for panel reform. <laughs> I'd vote for you it. You know, and uh, one of our previous podcasts guests has actually written on this topic in a way I enjoy, of course. Boo Lee, um, Nonprofit AF, has written some tips for not sucking as both a panel member and a panel moderator. So there are ways panels can not suck. Uh, I think I've just maybe been part of too many sucky panels. So, all right, but I'm going to come to the symposium, Andrew, and your panel is not going to suck. So um, that was just a detour that you know, it was important. It was an important detail. Yeah, I heard okay. a little bit of a threat in it, which I appreciate. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah. I, my usual goal is to be vaguely threatening. She's, so that's good. she's giving you a forewarning. So she's this saying, I'm going to come to your panel and it better be good. <laughs> Just a heads up. I'll tell heads Richard. Up, I'll be watching. All right. So we should get to our interview because um, it was a great one. So, Andrew, if you could talk a little bit about who you interviewed, his role in our network, I think that would help to set it up. Yeah, so this, uh, this month, uh, or this episode, or whatever we do now, uh, I had the opportunity to sit down with Ken Reardon. 
Ken is the winner of the 2017 Thomas Ehrlich Award for Civically Engaged Faculty. So this is an award that Campus Compact gives out annually. Um, I, you know, I think we take very seriously our opportunity and responsibility in making this award. We are looking for faculty members who have demonstrated kind of the highest standards in uh, community engagement work, in scholarship, in teaching, uh, in bringing students out into the world and, and building partnerships that make real change, as well as in changing institutions in lasting ways and contributing more broadly to the field. And we had this year an extraordinary group of nominees. It was the largest number of nominees we've had on record. And I think it really provided evidence for all of us involved in the review process of the, the extraordinary strength of the field and the fact that we now have all across the country at all different kinds of institutions really exemplary scholars working in an engaged mode. So that was that was really gratifying. Ken is a great winner for this award. He is, as you'll hear, um, somebody with decades of achievement, work, substantive uh, efforts that have made real change, working in partnership with communities, engaging students, producing uh, research and scholarship that's of value more broadly. Uh, Ken is a professor of urban planning and the director of the Urban Planning and Community Development Program at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. So he's a neighbor of ours here. Um, he's, as you'll hear in the interview, taught at a number of different universities across the country and really got involved in this work, as he describes, as an undergraduate in the 1970s. So a, a very long track record of, uh, of, again, important, significant work. He's also been a, a great sort of citizen of Campus Compact. Uh, most recently, he was involved in some of our national institutes in the civic action planning process um, as a kind of workshop leader, but he's done many, many different things through our organization and others to support the strength and health of the community engagement, civic engagement fields. And um, I think I mentioned this in the interview, but literally when I called him to tell him he had won this award, um, he was out with a group of students in South Boston knocking on doors as part of an organizing project. Um, so the, the work continues. And um, I've learned a lot personally from Ken over the years, both his published work, seeing him speak, et cetera, and then in a lot of one-on-one -on -one conversations. And so I was excited that he was in the pool this year, excited that our reviewers um, you know, kind of raised him up to the top. Uh, and excited to get to interview him for this. I do want to mention that at our national conference in March, uh, we will not only hear from Ken, but from all of the finalists. And you can look at our website and see who those folks are. A really great group of finalists as well, because again, this year there were so many people we would have been proud to give the award to in that pool. So um, yeah, let's take a listen to the interview. Ken Reardon, welcome to the Compact Nation podcast. Thank you, delighted to be here. Let's start at the start. Uh, how did you come to be involved in community engaged teaching research scholarship? Well, um, I was very fortunate in that my very first semester in uh, school at a small liberal arts college in Lawrenceville, New Jersey, Ryder College, a group of students invited me to uh, tag along with them. They were sophomores in a tour of community-based organizations in Trenton that they were trying to establish uh, partnerships with. 
this was a student-led operation called the Ryder College Volunteers. I got intrigued by that and ended up becoming very involved in this organization. We ultimately wrote a Title I uh, grant application with the Department of Education and got funding to set up an office of community outreach and was hired to be an undergraduate assistant in that office for the two years that I was at Ryder. And I saw what a powerful experience it was for the students from across a wide range of disciplines to see how they, what they were learning in their classroom setting could be applied in a really useful and um, transformative way uh, to support resident-led change efforts in this older industrial city that was really struggling in the early 1970s to get back on its feet. And I put that you know, in the back of my mind that if I ended up at some point uh, moving forward in higher ed and becoming a faculty member, I would wanna make sure that my teaching incorporated both classroom-based um, learning experiences along with field-based experiences like those that I was had the good fortune of participating in uh, Trenton. And when I got my first academic position many years later after doing my master's and PhD um, at Cornell, I was fortunate enough to join an interdisciplinary group of what were then called experiential educators, some leaders in the field of um, uh, engaged scholarship, Tim Stanton, uh, Dwight Giles, uh, Florence McCarthy, and Michelle Widom. And as the junior member of this um, rather unique interdisciplinary uh, urban um, studies program, I got a chance to learn from very, very experienced people how to you know, design and support students through sort of hands-on um, experiential learning focused on trying to promote equity and participation in um, seriously underserved urban and rural areas of both New York City and upstate New York. So let's let's continue the uh, the narrative. How you know you uh, have uh, worked at a number of different institutions at Cornell, as you mentioned, at uh, University of Illinois, University of Memphis, and now at UMass Boston, uh, and there may be others that I'm forgetting. Uh, how describe a little bit the arc of the kinds of work that you have been engaged in uh, across your career that that built on those early experiences? Sure, um, at uh, my first appointment was at Cornell. I was a, a lecturer, then a senior lecturer in the um, College of Human Ecology. And I was running their New York City um, field study program, which placed students in internships. And, you know, students had amazing experiences working for some really extraordinary private sector, public sector, nonprofit organizations. But a secondary um, objective of that program was to challenge these young folks to think about how they could use their skills to make a difference in terms of promoting um, equity and social justice in New York, which was experiencing tremendous growth, but also increasing disparities between the haves and have-nots. So we talked about various ways we could do that. Students were in placements four days a week and then a day of sort of reflective seminar. And at that time, right at the time we were having this discussion, um, the then borough president of Manhattan, later on mayor of New York City, David Dinkins, uh, his staff called and said that there was a group of ethnic merchants on the Lower East Side who had been operating in a public market space that was built in 1938 by Fiorello LaGuardia. 
who've been told by the city that they would not be given a new lease on this um, public market space because the city doubted their capacity to manage it and to upgrade it, uh, the latter of which was you know, very much needed. And Dinkin's office had been looking around for a university partner that might be able to help the struggling merchants association prepare a credible revitalization plan for this historic uh, immigrant market. And um, I decided that that was a terrific opportunity to take our students who ran the uh, a full range of disciplines from you know anthropology to business to urban planning um, to landscape architecture to collaborate together on an important project. And we established a relationship with the Essex Street Merchants Association. We did a very detailed physical assessment of the structure, the current level of economic opportunity. We interviewed shoppers and non-shoppers and put together a rather um, you know, significant report that showed with a modest amount of city investment the uh, Essex Street market could be revitalized. Initially, the report was uh, brushed aside, but a New York Times uh, uh, forum uh, organized for the mayoral uh, race that was taking place at that time uh, ended up featuring a key question at the very beginning of the uh, debate in which the Times reporter asked the then sitting mayor, Ed Koch, what he thought of the Cornell revitalization plan for the Essex Street Market, which made it an issue, and then ultimately built enough political support in the uh, recognition that it got, that the city was willing to negotiate a pretty substantial investment in the market. Uh, they privatized a third of it, but two thirds of the existing space, which is what was occupied, got preserved and dramatically improved. The students who worked on this, you know, just thought it was extremely meaningful and they got so excited about it that several of them got their placement supervisors at um, Lehman Brothers, Merrill Lynch, and some other powerful Wall Street firms to help us with some of the analysis because they thought it was a worthwhile application of analytical um, skills to an important public policy question. And it was just a transformative experience for all of us. And the Essex Street market ultimately got improved and to this day is a, a centerpiece in terms of the economic and cultural and political life of that neighborhood. And its uh, continuation is in large part due to the work done by these really terrific inspired undergraduates who met these uh, grassroots business uh, leaders and tried to uh, provide the best support they could using what they were learning at the university. I think a great example of engaged scholarship, I think. You know, I think one of the things that strikes me about some of your work, and maybe I'll invite you to talk a little bit about the work, for example, of uh, the East St. Louis Action Research Project that you led when you were at the University of Illinois, that you have a, a kind of track record of building projects that are, that bring together a group of scholars and a group of students to work in longer term partnerships with neighborhoods. I wonder if you could describe some of that work and kind of how you were able to shape it and, and, and what the vision behind that was. Well, you know, that, those are two really important points, uh, Andrew, I appreciate you raising them. One is just the, the time uh, period that many of the projects I've engaged in have extended uh, through. Um, 
much of what happened, at least back in the early days when I was just getting involved in the engaged scholarship movement and getting involved and becoming familiar with the work of the Compact, which has been so supportive of the work that I and other people have done, um, most projects were semester long. And many of the settings that I was invited, uh, along with my students, to work in were in very distressed uh, urban and rural areas, uh, areas that had been disinvested from for many years. And they had been the object of often um, lots of study by traditionally trained, often social scientists, documenting how difficult the circumstances were. And over time, residents uh, repeatedly asked to be interviewed or to attend a meeting or to sit down to review student work, felt as though they were really sort of, you know, um, objects uh, being objectified by these young academics and that very little of the work ever translated into usable um, proposals or recommendations to improve things. It was just describing how bad things were in the River City. And so in several of the neighborhoods that I first got invited by usually church-based organizations to consider working in, I could sense that there was a fairly deep skepticism on the part of residents of those neighborhoods about collaborating with university folks. And, you know, it's, if you're trying to build a relationship with an individual or an organization and they've had a lot of bad experience, it takes a while to build trust. So in the Essex Street project, what initially was to be a one semester experience ended up uh, extending a year. And then when they got some of the funding to actually improve the market, we continued to work with them a second year. And I could tell as we began to you know, show up and do things that maybe weren't the most useful, but responsive at least to people's concerns, that we began to build some trust and the people were willing to be more open about both what was working well in their neighborhoods and not so well. So I came to realize that many of these communities had been devastated by powerful economic forces that had been going on for decades. They had been studied a long time by university types, so to speak, and that there was a good deal of skepticism. If we were gonna to try to overcome that, we were gonna to have to be there more than just a 15-week semester. Um, and then the second point you raised about my tendency to get involved in um, interdisciplinary uh, work, you know, on one hand, it's, you know, a function of, um, you know, the narrow bandwidth of my own expertise that urban problems don't present themselves in disciplinary packages. You get uh, introduced to an institution like the Essex Street Market, which on one hand is an economic institution providing low cost uh, high-service uh, environment for immigrant merchants serving low-income immigrants, but it's also a cultural institution, a social institution, has historic value. And if you're really going to serve well folks struggling to preserve that institution, you have to have knowledge from a wide range of disciplines. And so that project, my very first field, you know, study project, so to speak, brought home to me the um, power of involving folks from similar disciplines or a different disciplines. And um, later on, um, a few years later, when I moved from Cornell to uh, Illinois and got asked to um, um, think about how we might build some kind of ongoing community development assistance project to support resident-led change efforts in that 
you know, very, very poor city, you know, I realized from the very beginning that I needed to have a team of colleagues who brought deep disciplinary knowledge from a wide range of backgrounds. And uh, there I was able to recruit um, two terrific scholars, one from architecture and one from landscape architecture. And the three of us really became the core of what ultimately became an interdisciplinary team of about a dozen scholars working semester after semester with our students on increasingly challenging projects. And I don't think we would have been, I'm certain we would not have been as successful as we ended up being if we didn't have that broad range of knowledge, skills, and experiences that, that those colleagues brought and their students brought to that work. I know from hearing you talk and, and others who've been involved in some of the work that one of the things you've kind of made a practice of is providing opportunities for younger scholars, pre-tenure faculty members to engage with the work in ways that make it productive for them and help them, you know, serves their career purposes as well as advancing the project. And I know that, you know, obviously that's a great concern in our field, the concern that if faculty members turn to engaged research uh, early in their careers, they might not uh, meet tenure standards as they're interpreted in their universities. Can you just talk a little bit about the approach you've taken to that and, and how you've been able to uh, create opportunities for younger scholars to build careers by also engaging in this publicly focused work? Well, that's a, a really good question. I mean, most um, um, uh, department heads, deans, provosts, in mentoring and you know cultivating young faculty will often raise a cautionary flag or several cautionary flags about um, junior faculty getting involved in the messy uh, field of applied research on what are often um, uh, contentious and um, problematic policy issues, you know? They'll say the last thing you need to do before tenure is to get involved in a, um, a conflict in a community and have your work, you know, uh, thoroughly scrutinized and take up a lot of time building those relationships, et cetera. Um, fortunately, my, in my own uh, training at Cornell, there were a group of senior faculty who argued that the future of higher ed was really going to be um, given uh, often cuts from federal and state agencies in supporting higher ed, the schools that were going to be successful were those that could really make a difference on critical policy questions, whether they were controversial or not, and that they there was a tremendous need to prepare young scholars to be able to sort of serve um, in the front lines of those kinds of debates. And I was fortunate that at Cornell, a number of senior people um, encouraged me to do that. Um, you know, there's no question, you have to then be able to translate the work that you've done in producing policy reports, which are often not viewed as serious academic work, even though they're often very analytical in nature and very complex, how to translate that into more traditional referee journal articles um, so, uh, I have tried, you know, as I moved into more senior positions and became a department head at Cornell and then at Memphis and now at Massachusetts, uh, to try to figure out how to um, create a space and provide the kind of support necessary for junior people 
to who had an interest in doing engaged scholarship to do it from the very first semester and not put them their careers at risk. And you know, so how do you do that? Um, you know, one is uh, uh, I've done uh, several uh, co-teaching um, situations with junior faculty where I would be the second faculty member uh, assisting them and initially designing and setting up a project that might go for several semesters. So they had we, had, we shared the burden in terms of creating the structure for the partnership. Um, and then I've looked for ways to, um, in uh, junior faculty members, second or third year to get them um, teaching reductions so as in order, in order to have the time to translate their research results into refereed uh, journal articles. And that's worked very well. Um, the other thing is um, very few um, PhDs who then go on to be assistant professors during their PhD studies are uh, trained in how to uh, identify um, publication outlets, how to structure and, and write for academic journals. They have very little uh, experience in doing that. It's increasingly demanded, but it, the actual pedagogy in the PhD programs haven't changed to provide that kind of professional development. So that's something I try to assess when junior faculty come in, how knowledgeable are they and how experienced are they in actually writing for academic um, journals. And then spending time helping them look at what they've already produced at the master's and PhD level um, that might be suitable for publication in a variety of outlets and then working with them to polish those items up and to um, submit it and to not have a heart attack when they get a revise and resubmit which can often be pretty daunting. I, my first article I got that treatment and I thought it was a huge failure now I realized it was really a very good review and I should have gone back and published it, but I didn't because I didn't know any better. Nobody had trained me. So those are just a couple of ways um, that I've tried to do it. I've written with faculty, junior faculty as well, um, and um, usually taken a second or a third authorship position in recognition of the fact that they were doing the primary work, but it you know, helps them a little bit the first um, go through and a uh, review process, usually the second and third articles that they produce. I might provide some editorial support, but not put my name on it because then you risk the possibility that somebody looking at a CV for a junior faculty member will think they're just a protege of a more senior person if there's a lot of dual authored articles. So that's a, I guess, a, a cautionary note. Many of the, the contexts that you've described working in, beginning in Trenton, New Jersey, uh, in the context of the Lower East Side in New York, East St. Louis in Illinois, and Memphis, et cetera, you know, coming from the university also means uh, coming across differences in class. Uh, in many of those cases, uh, those are also inflected by race and ethnicity. And I'm wondering what, as you have brought both younger colleagues and students into those settings, understanding that, of course, the students themselves are a diverse group with, you know, a, a variety of different backgrounds represented, et cetera. What, how have you thought about building the kinds of bridges that are necessary in order to engage in 
shared work over time? Well, I would say that one of the most uh, useful uh, experiences I had was when I was at Cornell, I had the very good fortune to take a couple of classes with the great uh, sociologist, anthropologist, William F. White, who wrote um, Street Corner Society, was a tremendous uh, ethnographer. And um, he did some simple exercises with us to help us realize the extent to which uh, our observation of communities different from those that we might have come through were deeply colored by past experiences as well as you know powerful ideas that may or may not have any basis in reality in popular culture issues around uh, uh, racial discrimination gender discrimination etc and sort of that whole notion of preparing people to enter the field by getting them to articulate what they expect to see and helping them see how those expectations were powerfully shaped by past experience. So I remember the, one of the very first semesters we went down to East St. Louis, we did a very simple exercise the day before, and we gave people the following question on the board. East St. Louis is, and we left 10 blanks. We had no idea what they were gonna say. We thought some of the comments would be negative, and we thought we would then uh, um, uh, challenge them to think about the basis upon which they would have those negative feelings. Well, it turned out semester after semester, year after year, when we did this exercise, almost all of the descriptors, East St. Louis is you know, corrupt, dirty, dangerous, um, you know, destabilized. And it didn't matter whether these were middle-class, working-class kids, white or black, there was such a perversive sense, uh, pervasive sense in the society that this African-American city was an example of you know, terminal um, decline and that that was largely explained by weaknesses in the African-American culture. And so having gone through these 10 negatives, we then added another question very early on in using this exercise where we say, is it possible that a city like East St. Louis described as the way you have described it on the opposite side of this piece of paper could have possibly survived all of these powerful structural challenges if there wasn't some fundamental strength in that community, that society, that culture that you're not yet aware of. And when you presented that second question, um, it really caused students to take a step back and say, hmm, yeah, this place is still there after massive deindustrialization, suburbanization, disinvestment, hostile state and federal policy. Yeah, there must be some very strong characteristics or qualities of the African American community and society that we need to understand if we're gonna be able to better appreciate why it's still there and struggling to get back on its feet. And that was a very powerful, um, and yet simple exercise that helped people realize their own sort of position within society and begin thinking about the extent to which things they took for granted as being absolutely truthful, perhaps were deeply, deeply flawed and needed to be um, you know, critically examined. So the other piece of this, of course, um, is the way in which you introduce students to the community they're gonna be working in. And historically, most of the projects I've been involved in 
it's been as a result of an invitation either directly through a grassroots organization struggling to make significant change in their community and often brought to the university by a political official who's representing that area. And my experience has been that to, to the extent to which you can create as part of the orientation or the pre-orientation an opportunity for these young um, uh, university students to meet inspired, courageous grassroots leaders who in the face of formidable economic and political challenges are trying to build something significant, that that's so powerful. It challenges so many stereotypes and it inspires students to do their very best. Uh, our work in East St. Louis, we were invited down by a network of eight African-American church women who had just taken down three three-story brick buildings by hand with the help of community volunteers and turned it into a absolutely beautiful children's play space. Based upon that powerful and positive experience, these women then said to themselves, well, we transform these three parcel sites. We could transform a whole block. And there's only 140 blocks in our neighborhood. Over time, we could turn the whole thing around. And it was that hope and that aspiration that then prompted them to reach out to the university, who had been a pretty problematic partner in the past, because they knew they would need the um, uh, design experience, fundraising ability, proposal writing expertise to realize those goals and objectives. Those women had such a deep commitment to turning their community around and a belief that they could based upon what they had already achieved that when our students met them and they weren't really prepared for this to be anything other than I think a somewhat typical academic experience, some interesting ideas, some possible connections. But these women, their passion, their commitment, and then looking at this park, which they had transformed from nothing, uh, our students just, they would have gone through, you know, three foot thick walls for these women. And they did because they were so inspired by their civic commitment, a commitment which our society largely suggested had been extinguished in the African-American community. And here they were sitting at the feet of eight extraordinary working class black church women, um, most of whom had never finished high school, who were attempting to turn this failed city around. And it was an experience uh, and a set of connections that these young people just couldn't walk away from. And they really, it was their excitement about being involved that kept them coming back to participate in the project year after year until they graduated. And they also recruited all of the subsequent students to, who got involved in the project. They wanted to see this thing be successful because they were so taken by the vision of these folks, the importance of the work that was being done by these extraordinary women. And, um, you know, they were the ones who really built the interdisciplinary base of the project and the, you know, major participation because they wanted other students to have this experience. I wonder if you can reflect on, you know, you just mentioned kind of the, the history of the universities having not been a great partner before. And I'm wondering if you could just uh, sort of think out loud a little bit about what it takes 
to move institutions, institutional leadership to make uh, deeper commitments, more sustained commitments to engaging in positive ways with communities that historically have been excluded from access to universities and excluded from economic opportunity more broadly? Well, I wish I could say it was the high road to morality, but I don't think that's often been the path to change in higher ed. Um, the reason why I think the East St. Louis Project, which for 25 years, the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign supported and at increasing funding levels, even when money was tight, was because uh, they had been seen by leadership within the state legislature, particularly African-American state legislators, as being a land-grant institution that was, um, had a tendency to always say yes to um, rural uh, agricultural technology transfer projects, but never really seemed to find a way to be helpful in urban areas. And you know, in the 19th century, when most of our states were rural, to be a land-grant institution, of course you would serve basically a rural population. But since 1920, we've been majority urban and increasingly so. And the universities, the big large state universities like Illinois uh, and others, haven't really made the shift. And so uh, the African-American state representatives uh, and their constituents basically didn't see the university as a real partner for them uh, because they really showed up for work that was useful. And so in the case of you know, East St. Louis, the East St. Louis representative had been in the legislature, her name is Yvette Young, for 20 years. She became the chair of the Higher Ed Finance Committee. And in that role, she decided to challenge the university to balance its approach to, to public service by moving a significant portion of the university's portfolio um, into urban communities that were underserved. So, you know, when anybody has ever called me um, from a community and said, listen, we are struggling with the set of issues we think that your university, whether it was Illinois or um, Cornell or Memphis or Massachusetts could be of enormous assistance to us, um, but we've called your central administration and we haven't got much of a response. I've always encouraged them to look at who is on the oversight committees within their state legislatures and to work through those elected representatives who have some real leverage with the university to get a more serious institutional response. So I think in terms of getting on the agenda, it's sort of the strategy and the indirect approach. Um, but in the longer run, um, getting a small commitment from higher ed to work in a community for a while, I think the real um, staying power and the long-term commitment and the ability to sustain a project um, is, um, is largely due to the quality of the work that ultimately gets done. And so I think local community leaders have to be um, very strategic in identifying issues that are critical, but that might be manageable, that could show some quick results, because the university is really looking for examples of scholarship that is having high impact on residents of the state as they try to make the argument to maintain public support for higher ed and also to help 
leverage private sector interest and financial support in doing the work of engaged scholarship. So you have to think about projects in which you can really have an impact. Um, very recently, you know, before, right before I left Memphis to come to um, Massachusetts, uh, we got asked to do a, as the, the Department of City and Regional Plan, a redevelopment uh, assessment and plan for a public housing complex. In one of the very early meetings, it became very clear that more than housing and employment and crime, all of which were problematic in this low-income neighborhood called Vance Avenue, a critical problem and one that was really causing people enormous distress was the lack of high quality, affordable, culturally appropriate foods. And um, we were able to put together an interdisciplinary group of faculty who looked at the whole issue of food security. We mapped how pervasive it was in the inner city area. We realized that just doing a local farmer's market, which we did do, or a uh, community garden network, which we also helped residents do, still wasn't going to meet the need, and ultimately settled on the idea of doing a mobile food market called the Green Machine, converting a used city bus into a mobile market that would stop off at the major community centers and public housing complexes serving low-income areas. Well, within one year, that project served 75,000 low-income individuals got enormous local, national, even international press from Al Jazeera came down and did their Thanksgiving special on innovative responses to hunger in urban areas. That project got so much attention that it really further encouraged the University of Memphis to enhance their commitment to engage scholarship. So I think getting a project started, local communities that want to get the attention of higher ed have to use their elected officials often to go through the state legislative process to get the attention of you know, significantly powerful members of uh, the campus administration, often, in my experience. And then once you get uh, a door open and create a space, you have to think very strategically about the kind of projects that meet critical needs, but that also can display um, in short order for perhaps higher ed officials who are not yet um, um, committed to engage scholarship, that the university can really make a transformative uh, difference like the green machine and that the attention that that generates has enormous uh, payback to the university in terms of uh, positive PR, um, private investor interest, alumni excitement about what their uh, college or university is doing. That certainly was the case in the, in the instance of Memphis and the Green Machine. So you are an engaged scholar with expertise in city planning. And I think there's a great concern among people, especially in urban areas, that any effort to improve conditions in distressed neighborhoods might trigger processes of gentrification that could disadvantage the very people who you're seeking to work with and support and provide opportunity for. And I'm wondering if you could just reflect on that. How do you think you're now working obviously in a city that is rapidly gentrifying and where you know rents have been exploding and housing is at a premium? Uh, how do you think about balancing uh, the need to kind of work to improve neighborhoods for people who live in them, but the, the risk that that will end up driving them right out of the neighborhood? Well, that's a, that's a great, 
uh, question and it's a very thorny issue. You know, if you take the 250 metro areas in the United States, they're sort of normally distributed in terms of about a third are experiencing uh, significant growth. And in those cities like Boston would be uh, right at the top of that list, gentrification and displacement um, is, are among the top municipal policy issues and conundrums. The city has wanted growth, it's reorganized itself to invest in um, the creative economy that Richard Florida talks about. It's gotten that, there's enormous interest and excitement about Bo in Boston. And very quickly, the older uh, working class neighborhoods are being transformed into um, upper class enclaves. And there's an enormous amount of displacement to the ring cities around it, the Brockton's, Lowell's, Lawrence's, et cetera, who often don't have the services or the tax base to really support these new, less well-resourced individuals. So in cities like Boston, it's a, and New York, San Francisco, Chicago, LA, huge problem. But, you know, another third of the metros are not experiencing tremendous growth. And there are the areas of the city in which gentrification and displacement are going to be critical are usually around big anchor institutions, hospitals, universities, which have been tending, have tended to grow. And then in a third of the uh, metros, older, mostly um, industrial cities, we call the legacy cities, the you know, Cleveland's, Camden's, um, St. Louis's, et cetera, there the economies are still shrinking. So in the second and third categories, gentrification is less pervasive and less a critical um, issue. Those communities would love to have that on their agenda, that there'd be enough redevelopment and growth in a neighborhood or a section of the city for which displacement would actually be a problem, but they don't see it because the economies are still so weak. But in the first category of cities like the ones I mentioned, Boston, San Francisco, New York, Chicago, et cetera, it is an absolute um, critical issue. And, you know, I wish I could say we have a, a toolkit with a number of really powerful um, um, policy, planning, development uh, tools to address it. Um, there's just, you know, a handful, I would say, in cities that are experiencing great growth, you know, um, Paulson in his book City Limits talks about in those situations you can enact redistributive policies. So in places like Cambridge and Boston, if you want to invest in the downtown core, you have to basically uh, have a significant set aside for affordable housing within sight. So that's one, one partial offset. Or if you're going to invest in those uh, highly desirable urban centers, some communities have created special zoning districts where you have to pay a linkage fee, a per square foot fee to provide support for the city's affordable housing, childcare, public education, public service improvement activities in order to help the poor and working class continue to stay there. So that's sort of a second policy um, option. A third one is, um, uh, an idea that's been applied mostly in rural areas to preserve uh, forestry and farmland for uh, low density, against low density development. And that's the whole notion of land trusts 
had been introduced to cities in Boston very um, uh, powerfully and effectively by the Dudley Street Neighborhood Association, who, when their neighborhood was experiencing out-migration, went to the city and asked them to transfer um, police powers, eminent domain powers, and they used that to to purchase at fair market rate, this is when the land wasn't so valuable, a big chunk of their neighborhood. Now that the city is experiencing tremendous redevelopment, the land is actually owned by a community-based development corporation. And they are upzoning small parts of their neighborhood to accommodate the new development needs that the city has for higher density housing and commercial space. And they're using the ground rent, the revenue generated by that, to basically subsidize significant um, new affordable housing and affordable commercial spaces. So the land trust is, is another idea. We're actually hosting um, a film premiere and a sort of one day conference in February on just these questions. We're gonna be hosting the uh, premiere of the Boston, uh, Boston premiere of a film on Eggcorn's community organizing work in the 80s and 90s. And with that will come the founding organizer of Acorn, Wade Rafke. But the whole policy focus is going to be on what are the full set of tools that are emerging across the country to address um, gentrification and displacement in as creative and as equitable fashion in those cities that are experiencing tremendous growth. And so we're hoping to have some better ideas after uh, February 1st. Well, Ken, I know because when I uh, called you to let you know that you had been selected as this year's recipient of the Ehrlich Award, uh, I found you out with students knocking on doors in South Boston. So I know you're still engaged in these efforts uh, as much as ever. I want to thank you for all the work that you've done that earned you this honor. And thank you as well for taking out some time to chat with us on the Compact Nation podcast. Well, I'm... Um delighted, you know, uh, having had a chance to interact with other faculty at a variety of levels of training and experience when I was a young faculty member at our state campus compact meetings in Illinois and New York, and then having had a chance to have a number of the project proposals and initiatives that we were working on reviewed by members of the campus compact network, and then having so many of the projects that I'd been involved in be honored by the compact at the state level and now at the national level. The organization um, has been enormously uh, important to my growth and development as a scholar and it's one of the reasons why it uh, was um, so touching and meaningful for me to be noted as an Ehrlich um, recipient because of the work of Tom Ehrlich and also the commitment that compact has made to create a new generation of civic activists who could help us, you know, really uh, transform our nation to becoming the beloved uh, community that Dr. King talked about. So I have enormous respect for and appreciation for the compact. And I want to thank you for taking the time to chat with me today. Well, I appreciate that. Thank you very much. Welcome back, everybody, from a fantastic interview. JR, what did you take away from that? 
I really enjoyed the interview. I have to admit, I wasn't super familiar with Ken or his work. I, I had heard about him. I'd read some about him, but I really didn't know a ton about his work. And I was really impressed by his work and the interview. He's a guy who I would love to just go grab a beer with. I don't even know if he drinks. So if not, I'd love to go grab a water or something like that with him. But what I liked most is really the genesis of his story when he talked about when he was a student and in many ways kind of stumbled into this work as a volunteer. And that relates so well going back to last season, episode one with Tim Eatman. When we did that episode all around storytelling, we talked about our own personal stories about how we were we, we were brought into this work. And and it seems all of us who were involved in that episode, we, we stumbled into this work. We weren't necessarily seeking out these opportunities, but we're often uh, turned on to these opportunities by other parties. And it reminded me so much of something that I say to students uh, when I travel around to campuses uh, and speak to them, which is that the human connection leads to a series of events, often unplanned, often unexpected, often life-changing. And what that really means is to live in the moment because you never know where that may take you. And then hearing Ken talk about how that has led to him being an engaged scholar, what he shared around the Essex Street Merchants Association and the revitalization of the Essex Street Market, uh, and that really being student-driven in many ways along with the community and Cornell's revitalization plan, and how that has now been two-thirds preserved. question or students were asking important public policy questions and that's now a centerpiece of that neighborhood that reminded two things for me one was that this work truly is a grassroots effort but it also has to be grassroots up and top down Um, so we must build that culture of infrastructure support but we need people like ken who stumble into this work and inspire students to stumble into this work. So we're creating pathways for people like Ken to eventually be administrators. Uh, One thing when he got into talking about scholarship and publication, it reminded me that we do need that top-down approach in many ways because one area where we are still weak across the board is uh, infrastructures to support engaged scholarship. And I was a little sad reflecting on that and realizing that we're almost in 2018 and we're still having these same conversations. Conversations. And we've gone a little a little bit, but we have so much more to do. And I loved his quote where he said, the high road to morality hasn't fueled change in higher education. Yeah, that that's a lot to unpack, <laughs> I think. Um, I had lots I of thoughts. Yeah, clearly. No, I mean, yeah, I had some of the same takeaways about basically, you know, that I guess what I took away is that it's just going to take time for us to be able to change how this is viewed and valued as different people who have had a different experience with it um, get into positions where they can make a difference. But one of the interesting pieces to me was his thoughts around how people not in higher education can influence that um, dynamic, can influence what higher ed chooses to invest in. You know, his example of the state legislator who became the higher ed chair and really put pressure on institutions to engage. Um, You know, sometimes that outside pressure is welcomed because there are a lot of competing pressures. So just having some one of your stakeholders say that it's really critical you invest in these neighborhoods can sometimes be the catalyst you need to invest, to value, to reward, those kinds of things. So 
I thought that was really interesting and again really fit with what was clear to me is a very asset-based approach um, on his part. I, you know, I appreciated everything he said about uh, how we need to help introduce students to these communities so they don't see these communities as just groups of people in need. Um, that was impressive to me. One of the things that really stood out to me in the conversation and when I just reflect on again, other conversations I've had with Ken and, and other things I've heard from him. I was thinking about my own experience that, you know, I started in the classroom uh, working directly with students and m moved into various administrative roles, you know, with a like sort of diminishing level of direct contact with students, as I think happens frequently when one moves mm -hmm. into those kinds of roles. And then I'm now in a position where I'm at one more level of remove and you know, I started thinking more and more about institutional change and now about kind of national uh, context change to support institutional change. And I, one of the things that strikes me about Ken is that he's incredibly good at thinking both about institutional change and the real ways that, again, engaging external partners and putting pressure on from the outside, working to change practices inside institutions. But at the same time, really staying connected to students. And I've spoken with people who have been Ken students uh, and have just heard what an incredible teacher he is. And, you know, I think there, there's just a big part of it, which is that, um, you know, I mean, it's funny that he said the thing about the high road to morality because um, I think a big part of it is Ken is actually a person who actually cares a lot about people. Mm -hmm. And whether they are his students, whether they are community partners, the point of the work is to improve life for people, and he likes a lot of different kinds of people, respects people kind of fundamentally, and uh, I just think that's a, a really important thing to keep focused on, that kind of how we treat each other and the extent to which we truly respect the equal value of other people and their, their contributions and the need we have to listen to people like that that was just one of the things that kind of felt like it was subtext to all of the the efforts and the ways that uh, that Ken has built. And again, I've known people who worked with him as colleagues, uh, as his professors, in all sorts of different ways. And I think it's it's just a consistent theme. And again, he happens to be a great exemplar. But I feel really fortunate that I think the the kinds of people we encounter in this work and community engagement work, civic engagement work. Uh, there's a lot of really good people, like a disproportionate number. And it makes the work a lot more enjoyable. Uh, and, you know, it's not true in every domain, either of higher education or of life. Uh, and so anyway, that was that was one of the things that really just kind of shone through for me. That, you know, we could take it down a whole other road. I just I read some study last week about how just how much it hurts productivity, how um, just mean people can be to each other at work. <laughs> yes, you shared that on Twitter. It was amazing. <laughs> it was fascinating. And, and I've been there. And, and fortunately, I don't feel like I'm there anymore. I, I just agree with you that I feel like I, um, in this work, get to encounter a lot of people who are very collaborative and kind and kind of just have that at the forefront, which isn't always the case. And I understand why it's, why it's not, you know. But I think maybe um, that connection to productivity might convince some people that it's worth the effort you know and you can still be hard on people and expect a lot and yeah make 
kindness a priority. So well, our work's so relational, right? So yeah. we're I think we have a huge number of really good people in this field, but also our work is so relational, and so it's about approach, right? In many ways, and uh, I think that's how a ton of work gets done. Is just approach you take and and developing relationships where that I feel like should be the basis of most industries, but it necessarily isn't. And so I feel like in community engagement and higher education, there's a huge amount of that that's happening. Yeah, I mean, I just feel like there's this underlying thing of like, uh, nice equals dumb. (laughs) (laughs) Like you... If if you're too nice, you're probably not that smart. Yeah. Um, Although we know, right, Emily, in the Midwest, yeah. <laughs> don't underestimate us because we seem really nice, but it's called Midwest nice. <laughs> and we know what well, that means, Well, nice right? doesn't always mean nice. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I saw exactly. there was a, um, I, I this was, again, I shouldn't go too deep into this because I read mostly like the headline in the first paragraph, but you may have seen a survey of faculty in the humanities and social sciences that essentially found that even though both those working in academic positions and those working in non-academic positions, all of them had wanted to be in academic positions overwhelmingly, but the ones who ended up not getting their wish and working in non-academic positions are much happier than people who ended up getting professorships in the social sciences and humanities. So comparing PhDs uh, in yeah, those Yeah, I fields. saw that one too. And it, yeah, I think, I think part of, I, exactly, I totally agree, Emily, with what you said, that there's this premium put on demonstrating one's intelligence, which means sort of outdoing others. And it can create a very toxic environment and kind of seeking to support others, collaborate with others is uh, not not valued to the extent that it should be and is often right, some kind of sign of weakness or a lack of ability to compete successfully. And, um, and one of the things I think about is given all of the hostility toward higher education in the outside world. If institutions of higher education cannot figure out how to be mutually supportive places and kind of lift up the resources they have rather than tearing them down, there's just, there's no hope because there's no, you know, I mean, I think we see this now in various pieces of federal legislation that have either just been passed or in the pipeline. There are people actively seeking to dismantle higher education and the only way to resist that is by kind of pulling together and supporting each other. Well, absolutely. And I guess where that to me relates to our work really is we talk a lot about these core skills or soft skills that we're trying to help students build that we think they can build through community engagement that they need for the workplace. And a lot of that is that how do you communicate in a productive way? How do you work with people you don't like or who are different from you or things like that? And I'm really wondering, to what extent are we modeling that in higher education at all? (laughs) I mean, I don't know how we expect students to learn it when that's not often how the organization around them that is supporting their education functions. Yeah, just to throw in one thought about that, there's a ton of research in the K-12 setting that shows essentially that people, that students learn an awful lot about what sorts, about how they should behave from the adults in the school. Uh, So there's, you know, we have different kinds of related evidence from higher education, but I think the basic idea, so, you know, with effects much stronger than any curriculum or program or effort 
designed to try to produce, you know, sort of pro-social skills in the students. The things that they see from the adults in the school are the most important things. And I think that's exactly what you're saying. If we want people to uh, emerge from colleges and universities as citizens who respect others, listen to others, uh, you know, work hard at perspective taking and imagining what the world is like for people who are not themselves and how they can work to support uh, kind of common goals, et cetera. Yeah, we, we probably have to learn to be a bit better at that ourselves. Yeah, and I think that is faculty to faculty, CEP to CEP and, and across, right? Because it's all about mentoring and mentorship. And so so often who mentors us is often how we, we become, right? And so if we're being mentored that our culture is a certain way within higher education, that's what we'll then expect of the person we we mentor. And so it takes that person to say, I'm going to make a concerted effort that the individual I choose to mentor, I'm assigned to mentor, that I will instill certain values in them. So it takes that one person to change the system, right? The trajectory of where this will go. And I really think that happens at a faculty level in some ways and trickles down. Mm-hmm. I think so too. So let's take that on. We'll just take that on. <laughs> we can do that, right? Yes, we can. Yeah, that'll yeah, 2018, work. we'll get that done. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. To-do list. <laughs> All right, well, let's go into, so what we're supposed to be doing this week is resources. I think we have just one resource to discuss and then we're going to go into um, something a little more lighthearted. Uh, I just this week, I think, received a new um, tool that was of interest to me. So the Education Commission of the States has done a fair amount of work around civic education policy, including a framework that came out three years ago that I know, Andrew, you and others in our network were, uh, including Stephanie Schooley from our last podcast, were a part of crafting. They've come out with a new special report related to that that includes kind of an update to the framework and a gap analysis tool. And so I haven't finished completely diving into it, but it certainly is an area I'm interested in. It has a lot of um, good updates to the framework from three years ago, as well as some uh, more recent examples, uh, one of which is the University of Minnesota at Rochester's civic action plan. So they've um, really referenced the civic action plans as a tool for improving civic education. And then the gap analysis tool, which I believe is new, is um, really a way of, of doing a self-assessment of where your state, or it could be your school district or institution, is around policy and practice related to civic education. So um, Education Commission of the State, something to check out. But Andrew, when I mentioned this to you, you had some I guess somewhat bad news around this topic for this organization. Yeah, I feel like for some reason I'm um, bringing the doom and gloom today. But um, <laughs> the you know the work that that Emily that you described in putting together that initial framework and then this follow up was led by uh, an entity within the Education Commission of the States called the National Center for Learning and Civic Engagement, which has been led uh, for a number of years by Paul Bauman. And they've done terrific uh, work in in really trying to guide state policy uh, in in support of civic learning and development. And I just learned recently that they will be uh, closing down. So Education Commission of the States will continue on, but that center. Uh, and I my understanding is it's it's an issue of a loss of funding, not a reflection of the quality of the work or the importance of the work, but uh, dependence on funding streams that you know, change their focus and interest and direction. And it's just a reminder to me, you know, that even though we're now in an environment where 
there's you know a deeper understanding than I think there was a few years ago of the importance of cultivating citizen capacities and the degree to which perhaps we've ignored that nationally uh, in both K-12 and higher education. The, the mere fact that we're developing that interest does not mean that resources magically appear to support the work. And in fact, if anything, the resources uh, in, in some cases seem to be becoming more scarce. So I've I've seen evidence that maybe new philanthropies are beginning to think about this work and uh, talk about how they can support it. But as of now, I don't think there's been a fundamentally positive change in the environment. The federal money that used to help support service learning and other efforts obviously has decreased dramatically over the last decade and you know shows no signs of returning. So I, I think we all just have to be aware of that and really value the organizations that we still have in the field uh, help support them in, in various ways that we can. But also, I think it's, in, it's one of the reasons that we at Campus Compact, for example, are really focused on asking questions about how we can be most effective in harnessing the resources we do have access to, to advance impact, because we know that this uh, environment of scarcity is likely uh, to be a reality for quite a while. Yeah, but and that's a, those are really good points, and I'm um, disappointed that this work is going away. I think the civic action plans, though, really have been a great moment for thinking about that because, you know, we're facing those those issues of pressure and potential scarcity. Our member institutions are definitely facing that, and what I've seen in the civic action plans is a real focus on not just or not really even let's let's spend more money on this it's really creativity and strategy and how do we utilize the resources already available on campuses and in communities to really deepen and improve this work and i think there's a lot of potential there so i think sometimes that scarcity forces that kind of creativity and we've been under that for quite some time and so we're we're real creative mm -hmm. <laughs> That's positive. I'm spinning it. Mm -hmm. I'm spinning it is, but it. I, well, I, I mean, to just to build, because I, I actually agree with that, that, you know, one of the things we've emphasized in the way we've talked with campuses about building civic action plans is, is saying, look, you teach students, you support research, you purchase products, you develop real estate. The question is not, should you do some other thing? It's, how can you do these things in ways that advance public goals and strengthen our democracy, strengthen communities connected to your campus? And as you're suggesting, that doesn't involve new resources necessarily. It can simply involve thinking differently about the activities you already undertake. So I think that's really important because, yeah, I think if people imagine we're going to make a plan that's all about all this money that's going to float out of the sky, certainly there are some institutions that can access some of the increasing wealth that's in fewer and fewer hands in the United States, but that is not the story for the vast majority of institutions. Yeah, yep, and I I think that's definitely reflected in the plans. And I think it's not just a scarcity of, of resources in terms of money. I think time is a very important resource that um, for most of the people that I've been working with in higher ed gets less and less as more and more responsibilities pile on. But every time I'm able to have a conversation about how this work can th thread through what you're already doing, help you more strategically meet the goals you already have, we get to a much different place than when it's viewed as an add-on. So just looking forward to hopefully even more of those conversations.
I uh, hope everybody comes back ready to make the world better in 2018. Yeah, sounds yeah. good. Let's hope for a good, great 2018. And uh, as always, do us a favor and um, subscribe, rate us, tell your friends, uh, send us your ideas, hashtag compactnationpod or podcast.compact.org. And retweet us. And retweet us. Yes. Okay. Bye. Bye, Bye everyone. Season 2 of the Compact Nation podcast is produced by Naval Mahdi for the Campus Compact headquarters in Boston, Massachusetts, and its 1,100 colleges and universities around the globe. All rights reserved. Learn more about Campus Compact at compact.org. The hosts of the Compact Nation podcast are Emily J. Shields, J.R. Jameson, and Andrew Seligson. Recommendations for guests, topics, or general questions can be sent to podcast at compact.org or join the conversation on Twitter at hashtag CompactNationPod. The Compact Nation podcast is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Don't forget to subscribe and rate us.